Hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And first off, thank you very much to everyone that emailed with compliments, complaints and comments on the last couple of episodes all about the life raft. I agree with the overall consensus. It's an area of seamanship that we very rarely discuss. I think sometimes the attitude is, and if it gets too bad, you get in a life raft and that's just like stacking in, stepping into a, a transporter in Star Trek or something that's going to take you back to a spawn point and then you you know you start out again from there. Clearly, that's not what happens. Clearly, the life raft is a much worse option than being on even a boat that's completely awash. Like if your boat was filled up inside to the top step of the companionway and it's floating at the tow rail on deck, that's still better. That half-tied rock is still better options for you. It has better options for you than the than the life raft because apart from getting washed across the deck and, and that being the thing that somehow knocks you out and kills you, it's still more solid. It's still more easily seen. There is lots of equipment very close by, which if you can just get the water out later, you can get at. You're not going to be doing much when you're in the life raft for for the starting, the starting section of this odyssey. If you go into the life raft in a storm, it's going to be pretty horrible in there, right? You're going to be turning off all the lights because you want to preserve the uh, the power. And then you're going to be in this giant washing machine, which I wonder if I can... <clears throat> I try not to swear on this podcast, but... There's, say on open 60s that being inside an open 60 at full speed at like 25, 30 knots is like being in a wheelie bin that's being pity fucked by gorillas, right? Um, I imagine being in a life raft is very similar in a big sea. Like it's got to be petrifying. So getting into that situation in the life raft to be avoided. If your boat is still in any way afloat, try and be on it. The life raft comes when all other options have finished. If say we step up into the life raft, but the 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 books, the 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 podcast, the the YouTube stuff is kind of like strangely absent when it comes to what we do in a life raft, unless you get hold of commercial marine stuff like for merchant crews and then they've got a lot more about getting yourself organized and getting a, a system going inside the life raft. But each year a certain percentage of cruising sailors in life rafts. So I think this is very much worth getting into. The section we're getting onto next is uh, chapter nine of Keith Colwell's excellent Sea Survival Handbook. There's a link for it in the description. This is an interesting moment in the whole story of it because pretty much like getting up a mountain, whenever we used to do a lot of ascents on peaks when I was doing expeditions in Asia, we always try and point out to people that getting up the mountain is about 40% of the task completed. And the reason to be able to say that so like firmly, you think, well, hang on, you've, you're climbing up. It is all. Yeah, it's all the calories and it might be a lot of the skills, but falling back down is a lot more easily. And then you add in fatigue and then you add in the fact that gear might have been lost and used up on the trip up. They've lost personal protective equipment from the climbing set. They've lost bits of equipment that's now wet or frozen or lost or torn or whatever. Like the way back down has a whole other set of perils which are magnified by the perils which were present that you overcame on the way up. The same with the life raft. Whatever was going on on the boat, if everyone hated each other or they hadn't been eating properly or they're very tired or they're seasick or clueless or unlucky or whatever it is or ugly, they're still going to be that when they're in the life raft. And now you're in an inflatable boat (laughs) with the two gorillas doing their thing, right? So yeah, if you can avoid it, don't get in there. But if you are going to get in there, let's have the knowledge, let's share the information and let's you know, shine a bit of a light into life rafts. What did spark my interest, a couple of people saying that it would be a good project to look at life rafts and then look at like some alternative idea for life rafts. I don't quite know what that would be. It would be the 
not cheapest option version of a life raft. Does that make sense? So instead of like looking at what's the cheapest way we can do this on mass, look at what's the best way we can do this so that if you're in this thing, you actually have a chance of getting to the shore. And I've got to say, <laughs> having had one now for like mm, six years, I would say a Walker Bay 8, I don't own the 10, so I can't comment on that, but the Walker Bay 8 with the inflatable tube that goes around that kind of makes it a rib is a virtually impossible to turn over little craft and i look around the gunnel and i see there's little sockets for for oars and other kind of canopies and things that go on it i'm like well isn't there a way of putting like an inflatable canopy over the top of this thing is there not a way of having those those seats that are in that thing with kind of uh, uh buoyancy built in is there not a way of like making a pelly case out of the seat or something so you can have gear in there like i'm sure there's something to do with those little boats they're so impossible to sink they're so robust they are so stable when they've got the little um the little uh ring going around them the the kind of like uh, water wings version but i don't know it's it's also a little boat that you can put a sailing rig on and i would love to get off my big boat into a little boat that had a sail instead of getting off my big boat into something that only floats because if i thought that only floating was what we were going to do on the sailing trip i would not have come so yeah an interesting conversation to have is there a better way of solving the problem of what to do after the main boat goes down? I put it to you. Any any ideas on that one? I think those Walker Bay 8s are uh, something I would love to have in the inventory. If you realize like the main boat's going down, like get in that or at least have that attached to the life raft. We'll, we'll work it out from there onwards. But let's get into uh, Keith Colwell's book. If you're enjoying these podcasts, you enjoy the, the content, please go over to the relevant section on your podcast app and put a rating and a review that really, really helps. Tells the algorithm on those apps that this is some kind of worthwhile content and other people with the same interests might be might be interested to listen to it. So uh, yeah, ratings and reviews, very, very helpful. And for my part, let's get on with the book. It says, Chapter 9, Rescue. Make yourself as visible as possible. An EPIRB or PLB will tell the search and rescue authorities where you are and who you are, but it's wise not to rely on any one system. Yeah, we live in an age of miracles now where you can press buttons and have incredible infrastructure churn into gear to come and get you, even if you're just you know, two people in a 36-footer that's gone down, not some like big passenger ship or something. You can have a, a container ship or a helicopter or a Coast Guard cutter, depending on where you live in the world, coming to you potentially to pluck you out of the ocean. But never, ever rely on one thing where the yes, no answer at the end is your life or death. So it says you will see potential rescuers before they see you. That's the thing. Hey, quite a few books that uh, talk about uh, rescue at sea and and people who are pilots on aircraft and uh, professional observers on aircraft talking about how difficult it is just for a life raft to be seen, which you'd think was kind of impossible because those the big life rafts are you know, 10, 10 foot across and big orange canopy and all the rest of it. But against the background of the ocean, that kind of stuff actually ends up being a very small speck. Imagine if your computer screen or something has got the old static uh, showing on it as you'd get on a TV back in the day. But one of the pixels is orange. Now go and look for that orange pixel, right? It's not that easy to pick it out. The key for us as sailors is to recognize that limitation and recognize that there may be this bit at the end where you can see them and they can't see you and you have to deal with the emotional the emotional results of that because I think that could be quite crushing if you weren't ready for it. Okay, it says, try to make contact with them, with the rescuers. Use flares only when there's a chance of rescuers seeing them. Use a handheld VHF and or a signaling mirror or rescue laser. 
Okay, let's go through a few of those. I like the sound of Rescue Laser. That sounds straight out of Star Trek. So they are possible. They are available. They can be very useful, particularly with uh, aircraft and that, although you'd never, ever point a laser anywhere near an aircraft. When you're in a situation like search and rescue, your little laser is coming up from the surface of the ocean and the likelihood of you being able to like pin it on the pilot for any more than a fraction of a second that's what you're looking for that's the thing that's so hard to do so the likelihood of getting in their eyes is zero and they're also wearing shades to make sure that that doesn't become a a problem for them long term but the problem with the lasers can be obviously it's got electronic innards it's got batteries it may start to wear down you need to have something else the flares it says again only use when there's a chance of rescuers seeing them i i do disagree with that And we've said it before, I've been in situations where people have used them when they couldn't see anyone. And that was what brought people to them. Even though I wasn't required, I was there and I was there because of the two flares I saw. The flares that go up, you know, high into the sky are intended for people to see that are out of sight, that are over the horizon. So to say using flares should only be done when people can already see you seems a little bit contrary to the inherent engineering of the tool, which is to launch itself up into the air so it can be seen by people beyond the physical horizon. But uh, we'll leave that. It's I guess that's a uh, it's probably based on two things, your attitude towards it, maybe your, your level of knowledge, but also how many flares you've got. And I would say, you know, old ammunition, old flares, the issue you get into is not that it won't work anymore. The issue is that those kind of chemicals, when they're stored, they start to crystallize in a way which means that they're not finely broken up powders, which will burn with a consistent and and expected signature. They're going to be crystallized in a way that they will go off unevenly. So this is particularly important for old ammunition with firearms because then you can have an unexpected an unexpected explosion. Should we say that? Everything that happens inside a gun should be a very expected explosion working in a very particular manner to make a very a specific action happen. Whenever you've lost control of exactly how the the gunpowder is burning, then you're at a position where you have a kind of a, an unmanaged explosion occurring inside your firearm. The same with flares. If you've got a rocket flare, it's got two potential sources of uh, ignition inside it. It's got the launching charge, which gets the the flare up into the air and you've got the thing that's burning in the flare which also is ignited by that initial launch procedure the point here is that if the chemicals inside them have started to crystallize over time it it might not work at all it might just have a little pop and fall out the end if the launching the launching charge is somehow uh, impaired but also it might blow up in your face because it's got a little bit damp changed itself into one big crystal and it all goes off at once so that's the risk if you've stored them for a long period of time and you're pretty happy that they've been stored well, you can you have to have on board the flares which are, you know, in date. But the ones that have just gone out of date haven't like magically stopped doing everything they promised to do. If they're one, two, three, four, five years out of date, I'd say the likelihood of them going off and going off pretty reliably is uh, very, very high. So if you're in a situation where you are starting to make compromises on when you launch flares based on the fact that you have so few you want to really nail it when you do use one i would say have more flares which is either go and purchase them but there's a facebook group i'm part of it's called it's called champagne sailing on a beer budget i think that's a lot of people (laughs) are in that uh, basket we do actually have a an offshore sailors group on facebook welcome to join it's open enrollment it's got a lot of the stuff that i do here on the podcast but i often post things on other on other subjects or things of interest the offshore sailors group 
the this other group I saw though, I think they've got a more realistic title. Yeah, champagne sailing, we all want that. The budget that goes along with that, it's difficult, right? It's very difficult these days as well where the cost of living's going. Things like having extra flares just in case on this maybe one day occasion in the future, it's not going to happen. But making use of those flares that have you know gone out of date and are no longer part of your legally required kit well you can have those on board there's no problem there you can have an old pot of te- paint on board if you want it's uh it might it might have some good paint left in it it might not you can make your own decision but um people are always complain where do i get rid of my old flares it's like well you're asking the wrong question <laughs> how do i store my old flares is a much better one particularly if you're doing long passages but they don't count towards what you require for your legal levels or or like the safe sensible levels you have on board you know all the sailing i do these days is always race authorities that are coming down and physically checking the safety gear on the boat so every year i go through like four or five different safety checks where every single part of the equipment and every part of the scantlings of the vessel is checked you know they're getting down to is the base of the mast tied off and is the i know is the hatch sealable with a a little handle that can be opened from inside you're having all of that checked all the time and it's a very nice feeling whether somebody else departs the boat having given you a big tick and you know like okay once again we are checked here that if the worst happens at least the very minimum is met i know that doesn't happen in the cruising world i don't know what the equivalent would be but um it would be nice wouldn't it if there was that you could for not very much amount of money get someone to come along and like check everything and give you all the leads that you need to go and get the equipment and make the changes you need to make and everything else just so you know at some point there was an objective external check of the gear that's on board the boat and that everything's okay because it is you know it is fun and i've done it for many years like flying around with the seat of your pants on fire trying to make things happen and, and but it if those red flags line up one day in a way that you're not expecting, in the way that they haven't to date, you're in a world of pain that you really do want to avoid. The problem is that we're all getting to a point now where we're middle-aged and we haven't had anything really seriously go wrong that we can point at and go, oh, I never want to do that again. We're just working on the basis that there's these set actions that we go through because we do them a bit like a spell or something. I will buy equipment and I will put it here. Part of the spell is completed. I will buy this, I will buy that. That then you will be okay should anything go wrong but the reality is just buying the equipment and having it on board the boat is not everything and as we've learned from going through here it can even be a bit difficult sometimes to find out exactly how to use the equipment exactly how to get food onto your life raft where do you go and learn that one exactly so yeah i would say that me be your own guide on some of these things with your boat be a little bit sensible Going and doing the champagne sailing is possible on a beer budget. Sometimes it can be to your advantage because you can say, hey, I've got those old flares. They're here. In the event that we go over the side, let's pop those off to begin with when there's no one around. If they work, great. If they don't work, okay, not so bad. But let's have that available rather than having a squeaky clean, super organized, logistically perfect boat. And uh, you've got six flares to save life for yourself and your family. That kind of sounds like my suck a little bit. It says use a handheld VHF uh, or a signaling mirror. Absolutely. And those things should be in the grab bag. And, uh, you know, things like the VHFs, grab bags are a little bit funny. Like I I keep a lot of equipment for the boat in its everyday operation in the grab bags. The things that kind of would be in the grab bag in the event of going over the side of the boat, some of those things live in the grab bag when I'm sailing normally like VHFs, like the I keep the, the search the searchlight essentially the the battery operated searchlight for man overboard and finding docks in the dark i keep that in the grab bag 
we've talked about before having some water bottles and some food. I always have those in the grab bags. I also have the emergency navigation lights for the boat in the grab bag because they could be super useful. They have to be stored on the boat somewhere. So do you have like a special locker for emergency nav lights? Like I don't think so. So the grab bag is perfect. I have lots of floating torches all throughout the boat. I've, I've shown this on uh, the YouTube channel with the bags of tools that I've unpacked and what have you, the electrical bag, the, the rigging bag. I also have it in every tool bag and every sail maker's bag and all the rest of it. There's always a floating torch in there because if someone goes over the side in the dark, those Energizer floating torches float with the handle part down and the light bit up but still buoyant, still sealed. And then they shine a little shaft of light into the into the night. And a couple of those in a line and you, you've got a line pointing towards your uh, person in the water. In the event of an emergency, are you going to run to the man overboard torch section of the boat? Like, I don't think so. So if they're just in every bag and in the grab bags, then you can always put your hand on one. So again, don't get too like everything has to be picture perfect inside the boat before you can set off. Sometimes mixing things together and storing things in the grab bags will mean that you actually shorten the amount of time necessary to pack the those things, you know, if you're going over the side of the boat. Okay, rescue. It says, be prepared for disappointment. A common theme of all survival stories is that they could have been rescued earlier if only the passing ship had been seen. Oh, sorry. If only the passing ship had seen them. Yes, of course, that's the thing. You can see the ship, but they can't see you. In the military, this is called dislocation of expectations. It'd be a very poor thing to go into a situation where you see smoke on the horizon or the, the bridge of a ship or something, and then to expect that what's going to happen next, that they're going to rescue. Unless they are specifically looking for you, what's going on on board that ship is probably the 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 required manning for, for watchkeeping. And that's the minimum required for watchkeeping. That's how these systems work, right? They don't have 10 people on the bridge looking out at the uh, at the ocean as they're just driving along on every day. It's, there's one person. If they don't have me looking your way, they don't see the one orange pixel in the screen of snow, then you don't get picked up. So when you see a ship, you know, as the person in charge of the raft, we'll call them the skipper just to keep things simple. But as the skipper, you can say, OK, we've got an opportunity here to be seen. But, you know, it may not work out. Everybody get ready for that. Um, I would say immediately at the beginning of that you want to, if you can, take some kind of little sugary snack. How are you going to do that on a life raft? Again, let's maybe think through this a little bit more what's inside a life raft. A little bit of a sugary snack can give you that brittle thin ice emotioning that's required for you to get over the chasm of what happens if this goes wrong. If you're already low on sugar and things are not going well in the life raft and you're at a low and then you see a ship and they don't see you, that's going to be a very hard 12 hours thereafter emotionally. If you can have the conversation, front load the fact that this doesn't mean we're going to be picked up just because we've seen a ship and you can give somebody a little bit of sugar to pick them up during those moments, I think it's much more likely to be able to get through. But if you're going to do that, you better brought it yourself because it's not provided in the life raft. Don't celebrate early, it continues. They may not be able to pick you up and you might have to wait a few more hours <laughs> or weeks you haven't been rescued until you are safely on board the ship or helicopter. Exactly. You've got to get onto the ship or into the helicopter, which we'll be talking about soon. Uh, Pre-rescue. The rescuers have seen you. OK. And the rescue boat will shortly be alongside. There's every reason to celebrate, except suddenly some of your fellow crew collapse. See post-rescue collapse on page 183. Oh, let's scan forward. Wow. I told you this would be a page turner. Page 183. Here we go. All right. Page... 183. Okay, good. Pre-rescue collapse. Hypothermic casualties can suffer collapse at the thought of imminent rescue. 
Although not proven, it's believed that the feeling of overwhelming relief causes chemical changes within the body, which suddenly reduces blood pressure and so causes the casualty to collapse. Well, that sounds pretty bloody awful, doesn't it? Look, we'll go back to it again. The mental game here is almost more important than any other game, as proven by the fact that at the very moment that you'd think that everything would be angling towards success, suddenly someone's body gives up because they're they're relieved. That's the effect of the mind on the body, right? So going the other way, if you can get the mind to to be strengthened and, and fortified by either previous training you've done or things and systems that you develop inside the raft to maintain the raft and maintain the crew, you're much more likely to be able to get through this kind of situation. If you're in a situation which is life and death, the smallest things help, but hope is the biggest one at, at all junctures. The absence of it in quite an easy situation can be a disaster. The presence of it in a disastrous situation can be a, a salvation. So being aware of the fact that people might be very cold, that they may start to collapse. Again, as the person perhaps that's most in charge on the raft, you know, at that particular moment, once that you might set up a system where you say to the lookout, okay, if you see a ship, I want you to give me a signal and then, but don't say anything. Like, I don't know if you can actually keep that managed or not, but you could potentially do that, couldn't you? Maybe. And then we could say, hey, everybody, let's have a little sugary snack now and just lift everybody up and then introduce the idea that the or just get them up and moving. Okay, everybody, let's just move slightly here. Let's just move our body position. It's just so they don't come from like absolute, you know, standing start to 100 miles an hour. They're going to have their life saved all in a wanna because that can, as you say, have some pretty catastrophic effects on them. When I was younger, I've mentioned this before, I had cold urtica, which is an allergic reaction by my body to the chemicals that cause the shell core shunt and close down your capillaries and move all the blood to your core. So effectively, I'm getting like prickly cold, but like terrible onset of it with sometimes blindness and unconsciousness and definitely getting very, very lightheaded with very low blood pressure was a very big part of it. And that was through getting cold. So I'm not too surprised to hear that uh, if you are very, very cold and then something happens which causes a big rush of chemicals, you can pass out. So be, be aware of that. Okay, it continues. Rescue by lifeboat. If rescued by lifeboat, you'll probably see the boat searching for you before they see you. Use a handheld flare to help pinpoint your position. Okay, so the fast rescue boats, which they use on ships, I used to own one back in the day. There, It's a jet drive, and I mean like a water jet, not an actual Jetsons jet, although that would be very cool. Big plastic thing, very, very strongly made, center driving position. It has a rollover bar at the back with an inflatable bladder on the top, which will inflate in the event of this boat rolling upside down. So it can self-recover. They're very, very stable, and they are designed literally to get alongside people in the water. So this is exactly the right piece of equipment that you want to come to you. Even if the raft is bucking and kicking and moving around, the maneuverability on those things is excellent and the safety because they don't have props or anything else is excellent. The limitation is the fact that the people that are in it are still only literally five feet above the water because their feet are on the inside of the boat, which is just below the waterline or just at the waterline. And their whatever their eye height is, is all they've got. And if the waves are any kind of size, they cannot see you. So keep your torch trained directly on them. 
if you've got a heliograph, if it's a daytime thing, obviously shining it so that it's bisecting the angle between the sun and that 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 the the little boat down on the water, just kind of move it around all over the place because the likelihood of you getting a, a direct uh, bounce straight into the eyes of rescue is almost zero. So you're just kind of shaking it around, but kind of halfway between the angle of the the sun and the the boat on the horizon as it appears to you, and they should see something from that. It says if it's dark, you can switch on the life raft light and use a torch to signal to them. Talk to them on the handheld VHF, and they will use their direction finder to home in on you. But help confirm their bearing by telling them where you are using handheld GPS or relative to their direction of travel. Use nautical terms. I am on your port bow half a mile. Well, try. You know, it depends where your mental uh, state's at when you are going into that kind of situation. If you can start giving bearings from their position and what have you from their point of view, that then do so. It comes easily if you've been doing it for many years. If not, as it says... Give them your GPS position because then they can tap that into the equipment that they've got on board, then just come straight to you, right? So most VHFs now will have, of course, the GMDSS button on them, the handheld ones. Those units also show the GPS position. So be aware of your own equipment, be aware of what it can do. And if it can display your GPS position and you can talk through the VHF to a would-be rescuer, then give them that. (laughs) That's your address right now, right? They need that. It might not be absolutely apparent. Even if there's eight of you jumping up and down and waving your arms and flashing things and all the rest of it, you're in the middle of the ocean. Like what you want and what's actually going to happen are two separate things. So a VHF, absolutely the way to go. That's something that you shouldn't bother using until people are in sight because the likelihood of you could try on the first you know, couple of hours you're out there or, or a little regular schedule, just try and see if one's out, someone's out there beyond the horizon. But yeah, don't, don't waste your batteries on the VHF unless you can literally see people. Tell them if you have uh, injured casualties or children and the condition of the survivors. This will help the coxswain make the best plan for their evacuation. Tell them if there are any ropes or hazards around the raft. It may affect their approach. It won't so much with the fast rescue boats, I say, because they're uh, jet drive, but um, certainly pass it on if you can. As a lifeboat approaches the raft, show the crew that you have a painter, assuming you cut it at the correct point when abandoning ship, and they'll deduct points if you haven't. The crew will then be able to secure the raft alongside during the rescue. If they throw you a heaving line, find a strong point and attach it. You will not have the strength to hold it while they pull the raft in. That's a very fair point, and it's something that we should always be aware of in sailing and boats and anything to do with them. The We get so used to the fact it's, you know, a rib rescue boat or it's a, a life raft. It's not so heavy. It's not so big. And then a 30-footer. and a, you, you, You're moving boats around on the water with casual kind of ease and marinas, and you've got the engine now and putting around. But if suddenly you've got to hold the weight of a life raft that's got, yeah, five or six people inside, it's got those ballast bags down below that are now full of water, plus the windage, you're not going to be able to hold it. The only way you can do it is immediately to put some wraps around something. And as we always say, three is the magic number when you try and develop friction, right? So get three wraps around something and more if you can, but wrap, 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 wrap. However, I would say don't tie it off if you can possibly help it. Just wrap it round and round and round and round. And then if things start to get weird, you can disconnect because don't for one second think that the person that's driving that fast rescue boat is some kind of like God at uh, speedboat driving, right? They do 
tests with the boats every week on the safety up in the up on the actual deck of the ship. And then once in a while, every couple of weeks or every month or whatever it is, they'll get it down the water and drive it around a bit. A lot of times that's just in a harbor. And you might have crew members who have never been out in this kind of sea ever before. They've never had to transfer people out of a life raft into their fast rescue boat. And it may or may not go smoothly. It's entirely down to the skills of the people on the scene. It can be difficult because if it starts to go wrong and you start to see where the limitations are in the skill set of the people that are rescuing you, it, it can be that you end up like sort of controlling the scene or attempting to control the scene, which is, you know, I can understand where that comes from and I've had to do it. But it, it it's counter to the, the most likely survivable, successful outcome, which is that they come take control and deal with you as the encumbered and kind of mentally slowed party if you're dehydrated you've been thrown out for, thrown around for the night seasickness is prevalent amongst the raft it's stinking in there you haven't had a bowel movement for two days you're holding it in are you really the right person to be helping them and yet it's probably going to go that way it never is clear-cut when you're involved in rescues or any kind of like complex novel situation at sea it's always some comp- kind of compromise of what everyone's trying to do you're just trying to have to steer that towards a, a safe outcome it says the lifeboat will approach either head or stern to wind to avoid becoming entangled in the sea anchor or other loose lines. Maybe, maybe they think of that. I've seen lots of situations where they don't think of anything like that and that uh, literally drive the rescue boat onto the life raft because they don't have to stop it properly. Big problem with those uh, jet drive boats. They don't stop on a dime. So do what you can. Be aware that everything's very heavy. If you're trying to be lay onto their boat, just wrap it around, load something like one of the ropes on the side of the life raft or what have you. Round, 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 hold on to that. And then if they start to do something insane, which is going to like rip the raft in two or drown someone, you can just let go of it and they will back away. You can start again. Rescue by ship. <laughs> While many professional ships, crews practice emergency recovery, there are some that may have no idea how to go about retrieving survivors from a small boat or life raft. Believe it. Okay listening to the uh the the stories in the mariner's library if like me you've kind of like noted something with the the uh, slocum story recently they're talking about the change from sail to steam and the fact that the the decent people the hard-working intelligent folks that used to be involved in life on the water most of them had gone away because there really wasn't a kind of industry to get involved in anymore it was steamships it was a lot less people and apart from a small group of people that were running the ship everyone else is just like chipping rust basically and swigging things backs and forwards in cargo holds a lot of people got out of it at that point the crews that they were trying to higher were like vagabonds thieves and 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 castaways right and it was hard for people to maintain discipline that's the story that comes up with joshua slocum getting into trouble with imprisoning someone for a very long period on board the ship his story being that the person was a real and tangible threat to himself and to the crew in a very you know life and death kind of manner the person later saying that it was all made up and he had he was just there to kind of like you know develop his butterfly collection and uh, he had no idea why they imprisoned him for 53 days around the horn it, it ends up being that the people that are coming on board the ship are not there necessarily for the same reasons that they might have been historically or that we might stereotypically think they're there for they're not there because they really really love being on a merchant ship and they study all the time and they practice all of the things they need to practice and it's just the best job ever they might be there because economically it's the best thing for them to do to support their family and that's it those people are the ones now going to help you go 70 80 100 feet up the side of a metal ship in the middle of the ocean and you're hoping 
that they've <laughs> got their shit together and can do this in a way that you don't become just jam up the side of the ship. OK, so they may know what they're doing. Brilliant. If they don't, hmm, this could get tricky. Larger ships will carry a rescue boat, often a rib. That's not correct. Just think about this logically for a second. A rib, a rigid inflatable boat, has an inflatable tube that goes around the edges of a, a rigid section in the middle with the, the driving position and the engine attached, right? We all know that. Now, the things that come down off the side of ships might look a bit like that, but they're not inflatable. Those things, often by the company Wido out of Norway, they are jet drive, Volvo inboard diesel. They've got fuel tanks on board. They've got rescue gear on board. They've got like a canopy at the front and at the sides of them, it kind of looks like a rib, but that's like super high impact foam that can stand being smashed against the ship multiple times for up and down in the derricks during the safety training for the for the lifetime of that piece of equipment right so it's not a rib it's a very solid very heavy little boat that's going to come over to to deal with you and uh, it's in no way going to be like oh we just bounced across the tube of the rib and in and they saved us this thing is going to be <laughs> hard as nails but it's what you want because this is very much the, uh, the the way that you get back up onto the side, of the, up onto the ship as well, because the thing with the fast rescue boats is that they have a, a line which they will connect at the front when they first come alongside the ship and they will rub what we were led to believe is an inflatable bladder around the edge of it, but isn't. It's high impact foam. They're going to rub that up and down against the ship until the line which attaches to the center of the boat is connected, at which point they're going to hoist it up uh, out the water very quickly. But uh if you want an idea of what that can be like, have a look at some of the videos online of pilots going on and off pilot vessels to get on board commercial ships going in and out of the uh, big ports around the world. That amount of lift, the amount of barnacles that get shown, you're going to be up so close to that you can see the individual barnacles as they rush past you at a million miles an hour. So if you can get into a rescue boat and then have that batter up against the side of the ship with you on it, it might be shocking, but you'll get lifted by a crane in a nice flat level platform. The boat as it's lifted back up into its davits. If you're actually going up the side of the ship, like heaven's fourth end, it could be get pretty. <laughs> it could be like a whole new you that climbs off the top of that cargo net or ladder or whatever it is that they give you. It could be a, <laughs> a very great for you, probably a little bit more religious, I imagine. It's important to communicate effectively with them, with the ship's crew. They're up high while you're down low because it will be difficult for the captain and crew to appreciate the size and effects of the waves on a small vessel or life raft. Again, that's not true. The people that are captain of ships used to be the crew on ships, okay? And they have been in the fast rescue boats. They've done it on rough days. They know what it's like. What they know is that it's going to be bloody miserable and they will be... Basically doing what everyone does in this kind of situation from the deck of the ship, go like, okay, let's roll the dice. I hope this works because it's a very complicated, you know, how do you get stuff on and off a ship? Well, we build docks and infrastructure. And if it's a cruise ship, then they have boarding ladders and all this stuff. Why do we have to do that? Because it's difficult to get on and off ships. Now, what's the worst case scenario for trying to get on and off a ship? Well, it'd be trying to get from the surface of the ocean to the deck in a wanna safely at sea in heavy weather. Well, that's what you've signed up for. And you're tired and you're dehydrated and you're in an inflatable boat. So I don't like to just kind of like, <laughs> I'm not just trying to like screw this down worse and worse and worse, but it's like, come on, you're like, we got to know about this stuff because it's going to be awful shocking if we don't. It's important to communicate effectively with the people on the deck because it's difficult for them to see what's going on in the life raft or the life boat down 
at the surface of the water, which could be literally like they could be getting binoculars out to look at you from the deck of the ship so they can sort of assess your condition. So it's a long way. Beware, it says the life raft or boat can be sucked into a lightly loaded ship's propellers. It can. <laughs> the problem is normally the other way. The ship's not steaming at the time that they pick you up. Okay, that's like a pilot issue would be that the ship is going to stop and then it's going to try and it's not going to try and do anything. It's going to turn sideways on to the wind and the waves and it's going to offer you like a big wind protection. It's going to have so much windage that it's going to start drifting sideways and it will drift faster sideways in the wind than your little boat because your little boat's completely in the lo- in the, the, the lee of this ship. So it the big ship's going to crash into you is what's going to happen if you're in a life raft or if you're in some kind of yacht. It's going to be pressing up against you. There's going to be pressure on the side of your hull, which is away from the ship, of the water there as the ship pushes you like down downwind essentially right so it's not gonna be that you're going to push off the side of the ship or something it's just going to be a crazy mashup of you alongside this vessel so this might be a good opportunity to mention i talked the other day about a situation with gloves that i'd come up with with the fact that it's a lot better to have thin liner gloves and then a big gauntlet that goes over the outside of it i've got these like jägermeister style leather gauntlets with a trigger finger and thumb available actually this morning i was I was snow blowing the driveway here in Nova Scotia. It was minus 13 Celsius and my trigger finger, so to speak, started to get a bit cold. So I just tucked it out of the the individual finger on my mitten and brought it up alongside its mates in the the mitteny part. And it was warm within a couple of minutes. But I got a little excerpt here. I did a test the other night where I made the change on cold hands from insulated gloves to this new system. Have a listen, see what you think, because it relates to this kind of situation here in the life raft because it might be a very good idea to have those liner gloves that i'm talking about which are actually from milwaukee and have a cut resistance having those on in the life raft when you finally get rescued by a ship could be very useful otherwise your hands are going to get cut to ribbons but if you had the right gloves on in this situation that wouldn't be so much of a problem and you might not have cold hands which would really help your ability to grab hold of a ladder or a cargo net or whatever they're going to give you to climb up the side of the ship let's have a listen Okay, quick outside broadcast here. It's about midnight. I'm here in Nova Scotia and it's the middle of February. The temperature at the moment is minus seven Celsius, which is about 19 or 20 degrees Fahrenheit. It's pretty cold and I've been out looking at the stars with my binoculars and I've got very cold hands despite the fact that they are inside quite a heavy pair of leather palmed insulated gloves but full fingered gloves and i've been talking about the fact that i should be able to get better heat retention from a two layer system that was my contention on that uh, podcast i think it was uh, number 91 or 92 we were talking about uh, gloves and how to keep your hands warm one of the things that uh, i found over time is that having a thin pair of liner gloves and then a larger pair of uh, insulated gauntlets with a, a trigger finger so you've got a, a mobile thumb and forefinger and then the rest of your fingers tucked away together in a kind of mitten but extending up to like mid forearm like big insulated gauntlets that two-layer system i've just literally made the change now as i've been talking to you fingers out of the gloves and into these ones that changeover coming out of those gloves does feel like jesus whatever i'm going into better be pretty spectacular because i've been about 
I know an hour, something like that out with the binoculars and I'm adjusting the eyepieces and moving around and getting a better view of the, the moon, particularly the Terminator line on the moon. And so my fingers have just got as cold as they would on watch on a boat at night. So it's a, a, a direct comparison. I don't think either of these two systems as they are now would help you if it was really, really raining because of course gauntlets, the issue is it water runs down your jacket and then into the gauntlets and that's a problem. Can be okay for helming because your hands are angled upwards on most wheels, certainly the boats I've got and uh, you can, well, maybe that is specific to our boat. I don't know, but if you can get into a driving position where your gauntlets, gauntleted hand is up and your gauntleted wrist is down, then the water literally won't go up while you're helming. And then if you want to go and do something that's more active, take the gauntlets off, pocket them, and then do it with the liner gloves, and then come back and put the gauntlets on. And literally, as I'm speaking to you now, over this period of time, I can feel the ends of my fingers starting to warm up. That's incredible. I just thought of it when I was holding my binoculars. I thought this is exactly the time when it's a problem at sea where you start getting cold hands and then that can become, you know, a massive incapacitation. It could be a, a really solid red flag going up where your hands don't work properly on a boat at sea at night, particularly. So yeah, just as a real world example there in the period of time that I've been speaking to you, I have taken off a big insulated set of gloves put on liners, put on gauntlets, and within that amount of time, my fingers are suddenly regaining feeling and feels to me like in about two or three minutes, they're going to be back up to back up to temperature. Well, I hope that's helpful because cold hands, man, that is the most miserable. Okay, well, you can't say fairer than that. I don't think you need to necessarily be in a sailing situation to, to come up with a solution for a, a sailing problem. The gauntlets, as I say, are good as long as you can keep the opening of them down which can happen on you know on a wheel on a boat very easily i'm not sure with a tiller or all the rest of it if it's raining but this is a, a work in motion let's try and get something that works in one situation and then we'll broaden it out into all situations but having thin liner gloves inside and then pulling off the gauntlet doing the job you need to do and then putting the gauntlet back on is much much better for trying to keep hands warm than anything else and yeah if you, it means that you can get up the side of the ship having dropped your gauntlets and gone up with your little uh, liner gloves on and not got your hands cut to shreds then uh, that's that's got to be better so it says here we continue with the book due to exhaustion and the effects of the cold it's unlikely that you'll be in a fit state to climb a ship's ladder see above you might not even be able to hold on to the ropes because your hands are so cold in the excitement of the rescue it's easy to think you can okay you can set off and that's a as a middle-aged man that's our greatest concern always is that we will make a young man's decision with an old man's body and then <laughs> disaster ensues right so uh, you can still have a hernia climbing up the side of a ship when you're trying to be rescued and it all goes horribly wrong and you fall back in the water so i would say work on the basis that you're not going to climb up the side of the ship which means you're just going to get pummeled up against the side of it in your life raft trying to fend off until they come up with some kind of solution to get you up in the excitement of the rescue it's easy to think you can there are many reported cases where survivors have tried to climb the ladder only to be lost when they fall off it after climbing but a few rungs cold hands are useless hangs you cannot save yourself with useless hands you've got to know what your physical limitations are you've got to be able to push those with equipment as far as possible in a, a zero preparation situation so again inside my grab bags there's always a set of gloves 
tending towards more being like insulative for the the flares because of course the flares can give off all sorts of hot sparks when you're interacting with them and the hot metal of the the handheld flares has caught people are awry many times before as we discussed but that equally and easily could be a glove which would have the ability to to fend you off a ship if the worst came to the worst and you were there trying to come up with a solution to get up the side of it the ship may be able to lower a basket or a cargo net to lift everyone in together. A large net can lift the whole raft with survivors inside. Pity the fools that try that, right? That's going to be a, a mash of people in there. It's going to be like something from Pirates of the Caribbean if you're in a net with a life raft. But hey, surviving often does not appear like you know dinner and wine on date night it is you stumbling out of the remains of some situation you got yourself into uh, lucky to be alive so if you have to tussle alongside a ship for a little while whilst you come up with a solution then so be it and if you have to get crushed inside the life raft for five minutes while they crank you up the side of the boat but finally you're disgorged on deck mostly alive then that's also <laughs> that's also a win right the best option is for the ship to lower a fast rescue craft. Well, that's what we talked about. Come on, FRC. I was calling them FRB. Oh, I was so close. That will come to the raft and pick up survivors. It's the same picture of the same rib from the other, from the other picture. What's going on? That's the same. Oh, okay. Well, it's not. A fast rescue craft or fast rescue boat is definitely not the same as a rib. The ship will send. The ship will stand off and create a lee for the rescue boat to work. Yes, the rescue craft, its crew and the survivors will then be lifted back on board. Probably, hopefully. This avoids exerting the survivors. Remember to take your small grab bag with ID documents, etc. Sure. Remember also <laughs> that if you get to the deck on this one, that's that's a huge win, as we said. If you don't have your passport with you, well, you're on a trip to wherever, you know, that ship's going anyway. So don't worry about it too much. It does facilitate a lot of things, but be under no illusions. That ship is not directing a redirecting rather to go to a port that's of your benefit. It's going wherever it's going unless you have the requisite probably 90 to a hundred thousand dollars a day to, to redirect it yourself at your own cost so it's going wherever it's going having your id cards could be very very useful maybe you know most of the stories that we hear of people being rescued at sea it's very altruistic it's the good samaritan act it's literally the epitome of helping thy thy neighbor out on the the sea you know to, to pick somebody up it's the what everybody does it's the law of the ocean all that kind of thing but don't be naive. There's also lots of politics going on and there's lots of uh, different nationalities that don't like other nationalities or the God you pray to or the, the color of your face and all the rest of it. Getting to the top of the companionway and proudly stating I'm an American might not like win you the popularity award for that day with some of the people that you might meet on that ship. It's certainly not going to like thrust things into the overdrive that you probably think it is. So have your documents. Absolutely. And if it's beneficial to use them, absolutely. But the reality is they're going to take you to wherever they're going and then their agent will deal with it. And papers or no, it's going to be a complex admin process. If your papers are legitimate, then your embassy in that country you land in, which, you know, there's lots of embassies around ports, right, where big ships land, they will arrive, they will arrange rather for a temporary passport and you'll get home quite easily. I would say, you know, having your ID documents with you, yes, great. <laughs> However, I personally would be voting for the, the gloves that don't allow the barnacles to get through to my hands before I'm worrying about the ID documents. It says hypothermic casualties should lie down in the rescue boat with their heads towards the stern of the boat. 
Okay, so that is even trying to use the orientation of the person inside the boat, which, you know, is not going to be going backwards very quickly. It's mostly going to go forwards and the bow is going to go up. So that means that their heads are going to be down and any kind of inertia effects will be pushing blood to their heads. Like it's clearly a big issue that people might just carp out at the last second after being rescued because of this this situation that they're in they've had the shell core shunt now they've got chemicals which are flooding through their system of relief and you know even maybe starting to get warm and starting to get some food and all these kind of things these may yet be precipices that we step off of unknowingly and we need to be very cautious about how we deal with folks that have hardly been mobile at all hardly been thinking that they might be rescued and if you still got the trauma of the rescue to go through before they get to the the flat cabin with the the pillow and the sheet and the big sleep right so Um, look after folks as best you can and if you've got people who are really low and haven't moved a lot and you've got no food to give them to pick them up before the rescue indicate that to the rescuers then hope to god that um they're smart enough to 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 fold that into their plan rescue by helicopter okay as with lifeboat rescue the helicopter may have difficulty seeing you if a 406 and 121.5 EPIRB or PLB is available, make sure it's switched on and operating. So the 406 megahertz is the signal that goes up to the satellite. The 121.5 is what's used in search and rescue transponders and the helicopters have equipment on board that will do radio direction finding at the 121.5 uh, frequency. So many EPIRBs have that written on the top. It, what yours should say, it should say GPS 406 121.5. It's if it doesn't say that, it's because the person that was buying it realized that the ones without all that stuff are cheaper and they went for that. (laughs) Okay, but the 121.5, if they are looking for you, that can be a massive boom. Um, Switch on the life raft lights. Absolutely. They may seem dim to you, but a pilot using night vision goggles will see them clearly. Use your torch to signal to the helicopter. All very obvious. And your rescue laser, as we said, could be very useful now because just they they have a it's not a laser like a spot. It's more like a laser, like a, a laser level that you'd use in construction that it puts out a wide beam of laser light so that you just kind of paint it over the aircraft and from their perspective they're getting a, a little spot of light jumping at them from the ocean which they can see very easily with their night vision goggles yeah if you have one use a handheld vhf to communicate with the helicopter pilots use clock notation for example we are lying at your four o'clock well they would just have to have their own bloody language how do you know there's a pilot in the bar he'll tell you okay so now they've got their own language brilliant all right so we are lying at your four o'clock Again, the mental capacity of uh, survivors in a life raft, you may or may not be able to understand that at the time, but that is the reason that we try and train hard and then fight easy. We try and learn these things now before we get into a situation where we have to try and work out what we're going on. I just remind you that I remember one time being in the middle of the Atlantic and uh, coming on deck and looking at the Open 60 as it's sailing along and then realizing, oh my God, I've got the wrong backstay on, at which point I started to let the backstay off and started to pull the other backstay on frantically, only to realize that the other backstay was somehow wrapped behind the boom, which is the moment that I realized that actually the correct backstay had been on, and I just let it off and started trying to pull the lazy backstay into position. If you know anything about boats that have full running backstays, this meant that whilst sailing with all sail set, a big jib and a full main, I let off the thing that was holding the mast up. Luckily, there was enough rake on the spreaders that it uh, held itself up. But when we talk about boats losing their rigs at sea in these big races, it's not always a mechanical failure. I think quite often it's a uh, a human failure. That's with people that really know the machine that they're operating. So to be on a life raft, 
to be sleep deprived, to be low on sugars, been eating dried porridge for a week, whatever it is. And then you've got to start working out communications with a helicopter that's telling you three o'clock, four o'clock, 12 o'clock, whatever it is, you need to kind of already have that settled into your head. Now, one of the tools that you've got on board the life raft with you is, of course, these orange smoke canisters. Now, if you've ever set one of those up, you pull the pin and it starts fizzing and then loads and billows and billows of orange smoke comes out of it. But if it's a windy day, they get knocked really flat really quickly. And uh, even though the dust may all end up in the water as a big orange stain in the water, there's nothing inherently about it that makes it easy to see. It's much bigger than the life raft, but it soon gets broken up by the action of the waves anyway. So what really good use is the smoke for? Well, one thing is during helicopter rescue, the pilot's going to come in in the helicopter and they're sitting in the starboard side of the helicopter looking out of a window on their right. And the door to the helicopter is also on the right with a winchman there who's controlling the up and down of the swimmer who's going down to you on the on the on the boat or in the life raft or wherever you are. There's lots to be said about helicopter rescue, which I don't think we should necessarily get into now. But the orange smoke is crucial because the helicopter pilot is trying to work out What's the wind angle down on the water with you as opposed to the wind angle that they're experiencing through their instruments up at whatever altitude they're at? If you let off smoke, then it shows them the wind direction down on the water and they'll do the rest of the communication. And they're much like much more likely to be able to position their swimmer on the wire close to you and facilitate the rescue than if they are just uh, taking a guess. Obviously, these are highly skilled people and their guesses are based on huge amounts of experience and huge amounts of training that they've done and and information that they've uh, received so they're good at it but orange smoke as a resource that you can add to the mix can be something which means that that uh, that swimmer lands right next to the life raft door rather than being plonked down 100 feet away and then the swimmer's got to make their way to you or worse perhaps drop them on the raft and then they're subject to injury or you guys inside are subject to injury or just general snagging of lines so the other thing i guess we can say is always remember that there's a, a line that comes down ahead of the swimmer ahead of the, the 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 person on the cable that's coming to you from a helicopter that line has to touch the water before anything else do not hold on to that line until it's already touched the water once and normally to make sure there isn't confusion they'll dip that line in the water before they even come over to you that's because helicopters build a huge static charge whilst they're flying along and it's completely insulated and isolated by their position in the air but it needs to kind of get off the off the craft normally that would be done through the landing gear if they were landing you know on the land in a normal fashion it was a bane for early designs of helicopters where they kept blowing up when they were coming back towards the the ground until they realized about this static charge and the effect it could have leaping across air gaps in the fuel tanks but now we've got it wired that as they come down they drop that cable down to you because their landing gear won't be able to earth out the overall craft that line that comes down ahead of the swimmer that's the one that is uh, is for that is for releasing that static charge do not secure that to anything on the boat okay you'll find that um, people that are coming down wires from helicopters are very shouty and with <laughs> with good reason there are lots of ways that you can make things very difficult and i would say that if you make it too difficult just bear in mind that the person at the top of the winch can cut that line and then leave you where you are with or without they're not going to lose the aircraft to because you've decided to tie it off onto your uh, leeward rigging when they came down they'll just cut the cable if you come to a life raft there's less kind of threat of that kind of thing but getting a good bang off the that line because it touches you before it touches the water is possible so so be careful 
It says, do not fire parachute rocket flares if the helicopter is within a short distance. A rocket flare has the capability to down a helicopter. Yeah, I've <laughs> I've watched enough MacGyver to know that you can pretty much bring a helicopter down with an elastic band with a paperclip and just, you know, catapult it through your fingers. But you can imagine, obviously, that a flare that goes into a helicopter, which continues to burn, has the capability to set the helicopter's fuel on fire, has the capability to destroy the electronics, to you know, go into the engine bay and wreck the engine. Like, who knows how exactly a flare could down a helicopter? We can have it as a conversation, like during a dog watch if you want. But I think in a rescue situation, it's not the time to experiment. So rocket flares stay in the bucket. Or if you've got everything right and you've left nothing on the water, a phrase that comes from racing to leave nothing on the water, you should be leaving the life raft with no flares left because they were all used to get to this successful conclusion and for vectoring the the rescue helicopter in or the rescue ship in or whatever it is. But you used all the things you had available. Now, obviously, you don't want to be using up all your stuff too early on in the waiting period before you get rescued, but it has to be spread out over the entirety of the the situation you get yourself caught up in. But again, just to reiterate, you know, don't die with unfired flares because they're such a commodity that you don't want to use them up. Use use them up, right? That's the, the objective. Just have as many as you can. So you can have a real fireworks display. That's the way to do that. All right, last page here of the book. The helicopter crew will instruct you what to do. Do as they say. They are the experts and very shouty for very good reason. That's the other way of looking at it. Take care not to crowd everyone to one side of the raft or the dinghy. The prevailing wind and the downdraft of the helicopter may be enough to turn the raft over. On a number of occasions being filmed from helicopters, I've almost wiped out in race boats when the pilots don't realize how far the pilots of like the kind of helicopters are going to come and take pictures of a race boat. These are not rescue helicopter pilots. They're charter helicopter pilots, but they don't realize quite how strong the effect can be. And of course, with a race boat, as soon as it gets that extra breeze from the helicopter, it starts going faster and making more out of that breeze and then faster and faster and more out of the breeze until you're virtually broaching out on a, on a flat day, which is, yeah, it nearly happened to me twice. So it's the, the draft is very shocking it's very noisy it can catapult you back into like a storm-like condition so again try and get your people ready for the psychological shock of of rescue and what that might mean and it might be that somebody could have a very very poor reaction a long-term reaction to being shouted at by the winchman because they're trying to help out as they think by you know wrapping their hand around that line that's grounding them or something like that you know you can end up at people are so delicate that you can physiologically or psychologically do something during that period which can shock them for the rest of their lives essentially so as we've said before it's the job of the person in charge of the raft which may or may not be the skipper to look after the physical care of the people in the life rafts but also the, the pastoral care of them like to be kindly to them them, yeah don't uh, don't be the one that got someone to a uh, successful outcome of a rescue situation and everyone ha- hates you thereafter because you did it by being like captain blood most search and rescue helicopters will lower a winch person into the raft and that's what i'm talking about as a swimmer be aware that some countries uh, search and rescue units use different methods some may drop a rescue diver first others may use a rescue basket absolutely so this is why it's good to have a, a, a VHF on hand or even a uh, aviation frequencies radio on hand 
or know what the international communication methods are or to be able to communicate with the pilot. It's communication, communication, communication from start to finish to make this thing work out well. And even if you're an expert in one country with how they do it, when suddenly it starts to go a different way, you could be the the the, the kind of the rotten apple in the barrel here, which makes a mess of the whole thing because you, you keep trying to operate on what you know where that's not what's happening. Accept the instructions, be open to new situations as to how they're going to do the rescue. What is certain, unlike the situation where they are crewmen coming off of a cargo ship that's suddenly now in the fast rescue craft coming over to get you out of the water, the difference with a helicopter crews that they definitely are experts and they definitely do know what they're doing and you should definitely do everything they tell you to do stick in your lane and maybe they'll save your life with the crews off ships there's a bit more of a latitude to kind of take a, a circumspect view and if they're doing something that's clearly not logical you might have to step in helicopters quickly build a charge of static electricity yes i knew they did do not grab the winch person until they have what does it say earthed into the water Okay, if the helicopter is using a high line to help guide and steady the winch person, hold on to the line which the while the winch person is pulled back up to the helicopter. Do not tie it to the raft and make sure it does not become tangled with the remaining casualties. Okay, so again, you'll be advised by the people that are doing the rescue, but if they're using a high line system to guide the the winch person, the the, the swimmer up and down to the raft, don't secure that. Don't get into anything other than exactly what they tell you to do. If the winch person suspects a casualty is hypothermic, they will lift them in a horizontal position, either in a stretcher or use a double strop, one underneath the arms and one underneath the back of the knees. Bear that in mind as well for your own life-saving strategy on board the boat, getting people out of the water. If they've been in there a while, you can have a helicopter lifting strop, which you're going to put your own rescuer over the side of the boat in a situation where someone's pretty cold in the water and can't help themselves, can't even connect a halyard onto themselves. That person can get the helicopter lifting strop underneath their uh, armpits and around their back and get it snugged down so that they're ready to be lifted. But that's going to lift them from like their upper chest. And if they've had that shell core shunt and now you start to squeeze them, then you can get into difficulties. And actually, if I remember correctly, on page 183, which is kind of a, a medical appendix to this. I don't think we'll be reading the medical appendix because trying to do uh, first aid training through a podcast is pushing it a little bit too far. But I did see here it says circumrescue collapse and hydrostatic squeeze. A combination of hypothermia with the sudden onset of physical action can result in some survivors collapsing and dying while being rescued. OK, this is like pre-rescue collapse. Immersed casualties are at higher risk. In addition to the effects of hypothermia, water pressure on the lower limbs squeezes the blood flow back into the body and is helping to support circulation. When the casualty is lifted vertically from the water, the full effect of gravity creates extra strain on their heart and this may lead to unconsciousness or even death. So I would say it comes from a couple of points there yes the hydrostatic squeeze on your legs which are now like three four feet underwater remember you only have to go down 10 meters 30 feet and you've got one extra atmosphere so your feet when you're in the water about three foot down underwater they are now experiencing one tenth of a, an atmosphere greater pressure which means that the circulation equilibrium inside your body whilst you're in the water is going to be shockingly different from the heart's perspective to what it's going to be when you're lifted in the air 
just because of the fact that they no longer has that squeeze and you can get sudden loss of uh, pressure because there's a suddenly larger volume available and the heart wasn't pumping enough to pump blood around in the, the new volume. The other thing you can get is the fact that the harness can crush their chest. And just from a very simple perspective, they may not have the musculature and the presence of mind to actually resist the crushing effects of the helicopter lifting strop and get into a situation where they can't breathe or there's undue pressure on the heart causing further issues. So lifting people out of the water whether it be in a basket, uh, the winch person comes down and puts them into a, a basket, or they have two strops, take that, learn that, and think about that if you ever have to get anybody out of the water alongside the boat, because it's, they're subject to exactly the same uh, forces. Okay, a summary here for rescue. You'll see rescuers before they see you. Try to make yourself as visible as possible. Do not use up resources until you're completely certain of rescue. Be ready to deal with the disappointment if the potential rescuer does not see you. Remember, the psychology is so important. Advise rescuers of the crew's condition. Are, they, are there any casualties or children? Larger ships will launch a rescue boat if conditions allow. If not, they may wish to wait until conditions improve rather than risk their crew and your lives. That's the other thing, right? Is that uh, people who come down in helicopters and jump into the water and do everything are a different kind of breed of folks than those who are working on a ship and are suddenly called into a, a treacherous rescue situation. It would almost be the responsibility of the captain of the ship by default to preclude his people going over the side into a situation where there may be grave or imminent danger to them to to get you out the water so if they're turning up in a ship and it's super rough bear in mind that it would immediately be against the better judgment of the captain to put people in a boat or not into the water to come and get you if they do that you know the chances are it's not going to be easy so uh just have that in mind before before you get into the whole theater of like what happens when the ship gets closer because it might, might do is just drive right on by or it might stop and they can't do anything for a while or it might stop and they don't know what to do and it's all terribly organized either way you've got to carry your crew through that mentally be prepared for post-rescue collapse it's unlikely you will have the strength to climb a ladder it's better to be lifted aboard in a rescue basket or cargo now absolutely but even when you're alongside the ship if you've got some kind of gloves on that's going to prevent your hands coming up against the side of the ship if you do have to climb if you have to hang on which i've seen a lot of that you know where suddenly the ship has to get in motion because it's rolling too badly and the life rafts getting towed and people are getting dragged and it's very messy doing rescues gloves 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 very important and also as we've learned they can keep your hands a bit water a bit bit warmer which is nice be careful not to capsize the raft by all getting exciting and stand on one side. Allow a helicopter winch person to earth themselves in the sea. Do not leave the raft or boat unless instructed to do so by the search and rescue personnel. And hypothermic casualties will be lifted or should be lifted in a horizontal position. Okay, so rescue, as you can see, has got its own elements to it. If you're sitting in a life raft and a ship turns up, if you hear the buzz of a small rescue boat coming close to you, if you've got a helicopter overhead, there's a whole other part to that. And you need to steal yourself physically and psychologically for what's going to come. Having some sugary snacks in the grab bag, which are there for this part, I think is a very, very good idea. It's I remember we used to do expeditions with kids that were right on the edge with drugs and the law and uh, gangs and all this kind of stuff. And uh, what we'd often do with them, because they were going to go through such a harsh time learning the kind of lessons that Outerbound had to teach about leadership and communication and teamwork and everything out in the, the wilds of Asia, if it was a really good 
time things were going very very well we'd get feedback from them about super happy times in their life and great things that happened on the trip and this guy helped me out and i really enjoyed that and we write it down and then when times are really really tough we'd stop and we'd get that stuff out we call it a morale bank and we'd read something from the morale morale bank to to lift everybody up everyone would have a little something that they'd written to themselves or they got from somebody else however you wanted to manage it and then when they're really low but lifted by the good news we'd get them to write some of the really bad things about what was going on which was cathartic and had its benefits later on when we're back at a peak moment and we're all having a great time and you just come off the shoulder of that and everyone's quieting down a little bit and you can take this more constructive emotional feedback and analyze it on the buoyant mood of being you know in a in a high spot some kind of peak experience from what's going on now our job was to try and create personal development positive personal development within people you know we were doing a lot of planning beforehand and front loading and and studying how to do these things so that we could create the best possible version of the experience we were we were sharing with folks in a life raft it's unlikely that as the skipper of the raft you're going to be able to just seamlessly integrate you know positive psychology into the everyday in what is probably also the closest to the end of life experience that you've had yourself so sugar <laughs> is the other way of shortcutting that circuit you can hack people a little bit and you can put them on a slightly buoyant mood at times where the bottom may fall out of things you might not have a, a morale bank but your morale bank is a trail mix bar covered in chocolate that you get out of the grab bag when you see that ship and if it all goes horribly wrong that might just carry you over if you do get into a rescue it's going to give you perhaps a little boost so that you've got some more awareness and and sense of what's going on and and keep yourself safer but look if you're in a situation in a life raft at sea, I guess we've got to the end of that uh, that whole phrase now with this book about uh, life rafts and everything else. Actually, look, it's going on to uh, understanding the weather, which is also, of course, part of your safety at school. It's part of more of the strategy rather than tactics. But I think it's been very worthwhile to go through the life raft, the rescue, the rescue comms, all the rest of it. Most people won't ever be exposed to that kind of thing. And that's how we want to keep it. But for those who are, little things can make a big difference. And I hope that over the last six or seven weeks or six, or seven episodes rather of doing this, uh, you picked up some ideas about how to how to deal with such a situation at sea. Being fiercely pragmatic is all well and good. But the physical demands that are put upon you and the limitation of the training that you've had prior to that date and the equipment that's in the life raft are going to be a make or break moment. If the life raft is just as it comes and you don't know how it works. Well, as we said previously, 25% of the outcome here is very bad for you. There is a problem. You haven't taken any action. And now you get the full broadside. Yeah, not, not the best place to be. So take it slow out there. Look at the life raft and, and think about what's inside it and how you might use it. Read more, as always, about people that have been in that experience at sea. The Mariner's Library is a great resource for that. Although I don't think we've had anything yet about being in life. Raft. Oh, well, I suppose Lamb Bombard, of course, all the way across the Atlantic in his rubber raft. But that's a, a kind of, I suppose, not really an extreme I think one thing he's got to benefit from is that after the first week, he thought he was only about 10% into what he was doing. So his mental attitude would be totally different to someone who's been in a life raft for a week and it's seven times more than they could have possibly believed they would survive. So, you know, getting on top of your own mental game is super important. And then hopefully you can have a clear head and deal with whatever comes along. But if you haven't already, please have a look at YouTube and what's going on with the Mariner YouTube channel there. I'll be dropping another sail training video this weekend for you to enjoy. So hopefully that will give you some benefit. The Mariner's Library continues five days a week 
And if you like all of that, go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can tip me a couple of bucks and that keeps the wheels going around. But wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.